Laurel and I and the family have been coming to Grace Point for four years. And in that time, we've since adopted our first daughter. We have three boys, and she's been quite a blessing to our family. We made some bad choices, and we came to Grace Point empty, and we were searching for something, but we didn't know what we were going to get on that path that God was taking us. We have been coming to Grace Point Church for three years. And in that time, we have seen and felt God working in our family and in our lives through foster care. And that all started during that open meeting that we had here a couple years ago. During our time at Grace Point, um, I was becoming more and more sensitive to God's heart for orphans. One Sunday, um, we heard a sermon about adoption, fostering, um, just kids that needed someone to love them. Miracle starts with the beat of a heart when love takes you home. This coincided with the uh, message uh, we had at Grace Point in November of 2009. And after having God speak through through you that Sunday, it really tugged at my heartstrings. And I, I realized that we need to be parents to the fatherless. So I remember going to the altar that Sunday after the message, and um, I really didn't have any words left. I just cried at the altar. And it was Sean who um, just asked God then, show us the way. We say yes, show us the way. And foster care really opened our eyes to something that we can do. And so we decided to go forward with it. And, and we went to the classes to be, uh, see if this is really what we want to do and become foster parents. And through the classes and through prayer and through um, talking with other uh, family, families that are in foster care, decided to go for it. And we prayed, we prayed um, just for God to guide us. We did all our paperwork, we got all through that. and. Uh, February 15th, we became foster parents, and then February 25th, our two boys came into our home, and we will be adopting them next month. That afternoon, I was online, clicking around at some adoption blogs, and uh, we saw the face of a little girl in China um, who had just had open heart surgery. Um, I just turned the laptop towards Sean and just showed him her face, and from across the room, he just shook his head yes. And we knew then and started pursuing um, what turned out to be our Lila Kate. Since then, we've also had several kids in and out of our home. Um, We're on our third infant. Yes. <laughs> we got him at two days old, and he's now five weeks. And um, adoption's looking promising for his case as well. And so there was a lot of prayer that each one of our sons were ready. And there were times where, you know, somebody wasn't quite sure, and then they would be okay, but the next one wasn't quite sure. And, and so, really, just everything came together, and everyone said, yes, we're ready to adopt. And the God part of it is now that she's here, they are just exploding, you know, with joy. I think God really kind of spoke to us or showed us that, um, well, you know, if, 
if God's people were doing what they were supposed to do in taking care of the orphans, the state wouldn't have to. You know, kids came to us, they were broken, and they were two, two years old and three years old. And they've been in eight different homes. And we said, it stops here. We're, we're going to put an end to this. something about it, whatever it is that is breaking your heart, it's there for a reason. What a story of faith, hope, and love in action. It's, it's so powerful to, to see that and to experience that with you and so many others. And that's just three stories of amazing stories of God working with love in action, and, and I just want us to understand what love is. It is so much more than, it's so much more than a feeling. It's so much more than a than an attitude. It's an action. It's a vulnerability. It's a giving. It's a, it, yeah, it is a receiving. But it's so much more. When we just make it about receiving, we distort it. We we break it down. It becomes a very weak element. And uh, love in action. I think whenever you look at that right there, and then I think about the stories that are told there, and I think about the other stories that are told. In so many examples of of um, those homes where where love isn't the the prime ingredient that makes up and constitutes the home, think about that. I mean, where love is associated with abuse and and love is associated with guilt and love is associated with with neglect and and the pain that goes with that and and the and then you and then you go to other countries of the world where if you're not absolutely perfect, then you're not lovable. And just the, the discarding of human existence and how that must break the very heart of God. It must. Love is something that I want to put a warning label over today. Because we're commanded to love, but we need to understand that this is not a feeling that you, you step in when it feels good and you step out when it's a negative. You step in whenever it's giving to you and you step out when it's requiring from you. Love is very dangerous. It's risky. It's costly. And you must be aware of that because the love that is portrayed in this world doesn't show that. C.S. Lewis, a great philosopher, a great believer, a great thinker, uh, said it like this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Loving anything in your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully around the hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up its safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in, the, in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. 
it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where there can be perfectly safe from all the, dan- all the dangers of love is hell. I want us to be aware that love is not as Hollywood portrays it, some self-absorbed hedonistic kind of, kind of feeling, kind of way, kind of process, that it is a costly, it is a lasting, it is dangerous. I, I, I keep saying that, and you'll hear me say that again and again. And, and you read through the Scriptures, and you see love explay, explained and displayed, and you will see that. You see in the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you see where we are encouraged to, to understand that love never fails. The idea that even Paul would have to say that would tell us that implied in that statement is the idea that I can walk away from love, that some people believe that love is something you walk away from. And he's saying, no, you don't walk away from love. You can't walk away from love. It never fails. It doesn't stop. And when you listen to the words of our Savior and you find how He lived His life and how He even died in His life, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The amount of love that was displayed on the cross is absolutely amazing. And then whenever He says to, he says to His believers, you need to love your enemies. Now, okay, it's one thing to love your friends. It's one thing to love your, 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 your fantasy football league. It's, it's one thing to love your team. It's, it's another thing to love your enemies. To love your enemies? To pray for those who persecute you? I, God, I don't even have time to pray for my family. I don't pray that much. And so how can I take time to pray for my enemies? But literally, we must put on our prayer list, in our prayer conversations with God, praying for those that we absolutely can't stand. And maybe our prayer is this, God, give me your grace that I can love as you loved. Jesus was a stud when it came to love. All right? Now, it helps having the the divine DNA pulsing through your veins, okay? So I know that he has a, he, he's a little bit uh, over the top for us, but let's just use Jesus as just that, that example. And, and again, think about him dying on the cross, giving his last drop of blood and crying out, God, forgive them. He's literally looking at the people who are bartering for his clothes as he's stripped naked. The, the people who have, who have mocked him, have, who have jeered him, who have, who have beaten him. And he's saying things like, forgive them. Again, I know it's a dimension that we know not of. It's, it's one of those things that is, it, it's, it's hard to even imagine that. Take your Bibles, be fine in the book of Matthew chapter 22 because... We'll go there in a moment, but we're gonna we gotta understand what's going on in this passage. It is, it is. Can I say? I don't know if I can say this or not, but I'm gonna say it and then I'll retract it later. But I'm gonna say it now, and and that is, it is the most important passage of the New Testament, and I think I can support that. If we don't get this one down. As a church, as a body of believers, if I don't get it as an individual, if I don't get this passage down, then I, I, I don't get the faith. I don't get Christianity in, it, in its very, very basic rudimentary level. I don't get it, and I'm not living it. If I don't get this, 
this, this passage down. Jesus always had a problem with these, uh, with these Pharisees and, and Sadducees. They're, they're kind of like a thorn constantly in his side. But there's a difference between them. I know sometimes you kind of lump them all together as just troublemakers to Jesus. But the Sadducees didn't believe the same thing as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, obviously, as, as the Sadducees. In fact, the Sadducees, they, they had their own system of beliefs. They rejected uh, the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, that God knew everything. They, they believed everything would happen by chance. And they rejected other traditions that were of the faith, okay? That's kind of the Sadducees. But now if you lump those next to the Pharisees, they believed in the afterlife. They believed in preserving the traditions of, of Judaism. The letter of the law was more important than the spirit of the law. And understanding that you keep that law and you don't, to the point that it became an idolatrous kind of faith that they were living out. Now, if you weren't here with us last week, you missed a message that you should must, you must, you must go online and watch because it is one of our core values. It is actually one of the two things that we've been committed to for the past 10 years that I'm, as lead pastor, I'm saying that we're going to be committed to again for the next 10 years. And, and so that's there. You, need to, you don't need to miss when we talked about the Great Commission because that is a very key passage that, that tells us how we should go and what we should do as we go, okay? So don't miss the Great Commission. It's what we are to do and it's what we, where we're to go, okay? That's what the Great Commission is about. Now, this week, I want to come back and I want to talk about the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment tells us what we are to be and also what we are to do. Because everything that we are to go and, and comes with a doing element. Everything that we are to be must result in a changed life. It's not just being. It's not just believing. It also should affect the way we live out our life. And we talked about the Great Commission last week. And so I won't go there this week. But I want to focus on the Great Commandment. We've got to get this one down. We miss this one. We miss it all. And this is why I can say, I believe I can say that this is the most important concept. The, the basic foundation, the bedrock of all Christendom is this right here. It, because he tells us in this passage we're about to read from that we, we are, that everything, the law and the prophets, every belief system that we have, it, it, it's, it's built upon this. He said, he said, these two commandments depend all the law and all of the prophets. And so you got your Bible and you're looking at Matthew chapter 22. I want us to understand as we're thinking about this that he tells us, because he tells us to love God and he tells us to love, love people. We've got to get that down. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. And if we do that, we get, we get what the prophets said we get what we need to be about. But I'll, I'll warn you again. Love is costly. It's costly. When he tells us to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and in Mark, our strength, everything that we have is on the table to love God. It's going to be costly. Also, he tells us, though, that we're to love our neighbors. It's going to be risky. If we love at this level, not the hedonistic, self-absorbed Hollywood level, okay, but if we love at the God level of love, 
it will be costly, it will be risky, it will, it will put you in a vulnerable position at times, and it will, could even be dangerous. And we'll go about the danger in a moment. I want you to understand, though, what he tells us. There's two parts to this command that he gives. The great commandment is this, that we would love God. Let's talk about what it means to love God. But first of all, before we do that, let's look at the passage. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, it's this passage. These Pharisees and the Sadducees are there. They're troubling Jesus. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In this passage, he tells us to love God. First and foremost, you've got to get that one down. Loving God with all of our heart, that's our spiritual being. With all of our soul, that's our emotional wellness. With all of our mind, that's our intellectual engagement. With all of our strength, that's what Mark 12, 30 adds to it. We're to love God with everything. It was as if Jesus was, was listing out, how many ways can I break man up? Is he just an individual person walking on the planet? No, he has a mind. He has a soul. He has a spirit. He has strength. And you take every bit of who you are, every corpuscle, everything, every, every atom of you, and we must figure out how to love God in that, how to express that love to him. Now, a great Swami of old, famous Swami in India, said it like this. He says, you kill the mind and... And then only can you meditate. I don't believe that. I think Christ calls us to redeem the mind. Uh, to redeem that mind. And, and so I just want to quickly, as you look at this passage, he tells us to love the Lord thy God with all your mind. What does that mean? There's this intellectual part of who, who, who we are. We go to school to feed the mind. You get college degrees that say, hey, this person fed his mind. All right, this is about feeding the mind. We know about feeding the mind. How are you feeding your mind to express your love to God? That intellectual man of who you are, how are you doing in that side? John chapter 17, 17 says it like this, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So we're going to be changed. If my mind is going to be altered, I must know truth, live truth, believe truth. So there is this need to stimulate the mind. All right? When was the last time you read a book? All right? It's alarming the number of people who graduate from college never to finish a book again in their life. When's the last time you opened this book and just spent 10 minutes? I don't talking all day. Ten minutes, five minutes, just just reading. I, I can't read. Listen, you can get, there's so many free on, uh, online sources that now, it'll read to you and just let it pour into you. What about your mind? Are you stimulating it with truth? Are you loving God with, with your heart, 
This is that spirit-to-spirit communication that needs to take place. And the Scriptures tell us in Romans 8, 16, He said the Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. This, there needs to be this communication line between your spirit and God's spirit. How will you ever know God's will for your life unless that spirit is connecting with God's spirit? Can you truly say that the spirit inside of you is engaging in conversations regularly, constantly with God's Spirit? Can you say that His Spirit is telling your spirit that you're a child of God? This should be one of the acid tests of our life, that I can look into my spirit, and I know His Spirit is speaking to my spirit. Sometimes I don't feel very saved. Early in the mornings, I don't feel saved. All right? When somebody messes up my meal that I ordered at a restaurant, I don't feel saved. But it's His Spirit speaks to my spirit, says, Mike, cool it. Cool your jets. All right, there are more important things than your hot meal. There are more important things than you not getting enough sleep. His spirit speaking to my spirit. Does his spirit speak to your spirit? Then there's the soul side of who we are. I think it's probably one of the most neglected parts of, of who we are. This is, it's the emotional side. I've grown up in church all my life, and I can tell you right now, all my years in seminaries, all my years in church, I've heard so little on the emotional wellness of individuals. And I, it's, it's one of my campaigns, it's one of my crusades. I meet with men regularly. And what I deal with, yeah, we deal with intellectual, yeah, we deal with the, with the, with the spirit-to-spirit conversations. But I have found, now listen everybody to this. There are so many wounded people in this world. that They are so hurt deep down inside of them. From people in the past, from hurts, from hang-ups, from habits. That they are so emotionally closed off. They, they don't connect with God and they don't connect on an emotional level with anybody. And yet we're to love God with our emotions? We're to love Him with our, with our soul? How does that happen? Cry of the Soul, a book that was written, it says it like this, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. Reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, and, and, and disengagement. We we strain at anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through a brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. I am so convinced that it is one of the most neglected spiritual formation elements of the church. And I don't want it to be. I want us to love Him with our soul, with our mind, with our spirits. I want Him also, as as again Mark points out, to love Him with our strength. To love Him with our strength. That's this physical, volitional side of us. And the thing is, is we can't take any of this and shove it to the side. If we don't love Him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, then all of a sudden we give Satan a playground and we start loving something else 
further than loving Him. When we, when we love Him with our mind but not our emotions, what does that become? We become this intellectualist religion, much like the Pharisees were. They had it down. They could quote chapter and verse. They, could, they, they had the laws down. They even added another 613 to them just to help you understand what the others were. That's how much in tune they were with the structure of it all. Intellectually, they were there. Heart, they were not. What happens when you love Him with, your, with your, your emotions, but you don't love Him with your mind? You become the sentimentalist with a shallow, flighty religion. I believe in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when He told us, He said, present your bodies. Present your, present your souls. Present your spirits. Present your minds. Present your strength. Present your whole being before Him. Bring everything to Him in a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, what happens here on Sunday morning, please hang with me on this. This isn't worship what happens here. It's not worship till you bring the worship. They're just setting the stage. They're just priming the pump. They're just laying the foundation. If you don't come heart, soul, mind, strength and bring yourself to this room, there's no worship. We're either worshipers or we're spectators. And we're worshipers when we bring our whole self to God. Everything to Him. Everything of who we are to everything that who He is, that's worship. Then we're engaging in worship. Total me, loving totally God leads to worship. Here's my definition. You can improve on it. When we collectively and corporately bring all our hearts, our souls, our mind, our strength transformed to the adoration, adoration of God in spirit and truth, that's worship. We need to be worshipers. We need to be lovers of God. And when we're lovers of God, worship flows from that. When we love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, worship, that's worship. Do you worship God today or are you just spectating today? Are you just evaluating today? I didn't like that song set. didn't like that message. thought it went a little long. thought it was a little short. thought it was a little dry. thought it was... What would you bring? What would you bring? See, I want to raise up worshipers. People who love God, heart, soul, mind, strength, all in for God. And then words will come out of their lips. Their feet will begin to dance. Their life will be different. Because it's not about them. It's about Him. I think Gordon Dole hit a very convicting statement when he said, most middle class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. As a result, their meanings and values are distorted. The relationships disentangled faster than they can keep them in repair. Their lifestyle resembles a cast of characters in search of a plot. Why? Because we worship our work. We work at our play and we play at our worship. See, we got it all mixed up. And I can tell you right now, this great commandment will... It will be costly because it's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you value life and look at God. and It's going to change that. And if you aren't there, if I'm not there, I'm not worshiping. 
I'm not loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's going to cost everything that I am to really worship Him. But it's also loving people. It's, it's loving God first and foremost. I think when we get the loving God and loving people down, that when we get the great commandment down, I think the great commission follows in suit so naturally. Because we're loving God in heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that really becomes really easy to love others because God loves others and we love what God loves. And then I love, the, I, I love them so much that I can't let them go without a relationship with Him. So what I need to do is I need to understand what it means to love others. And I, I can tell you this, this is going to be risky. This is going to be risky because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be asked to love people that you wouldn't naturally love. He's already told us to love our enemies. He's already told us to pray for our, those that we can't stand. He's already told us that. See, I'm afraid what we call love, God calls puppy love. And what God calls love, we call ridiculous. There's no way, God, I'm going to love that person. You don't know what they did. You don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. How can I love them? How can I put my... How can these families open up their home? Don't they realize these kids are coming in and they've got abusive backgrounds? How vulnerable is that? How awesome is that? To love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, there's these concentric circles, I think, when you think about love. Uh, you know, I'm not saying this is the, the order. I, I'm saying for everyone, I'm saying maybe this should be the order. We can debate about this all day long. You know, God, I think, should be in the middle. I think we established that. I don't know that God's in the middle, okay, in your life or mine. You know, do you love self next or do you love your family next? I don't know. And I think sometimes that ebbs and flows depend, depending on if there's a nice new boat for sale or uh, if there's another option, a new toy for you versus what your family might need. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that ebbs and flows depending on something. Would you lay down your life for your kids? Absolutely. But, you know, we'll, we'll see if self or family comes first or second. Friends, obviously, they're going to come after self and family. Uh, some psychologists say you've got to love yourself first. And I'm not going to get into that, some of that stuff. I, I'm not there. You know, so, friends, but you know, the outer ring, on the furthest one out, are the unnamed, the unknown, the neighbors. And what does Jesus say? He said, I want you to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. To the degree that you take care, water, feed, put out to pasture, whatever you do with yourself, you love your neighbor the same way. You love the unknown, the unnamed. This is where it becomes dangerous because dangerous not in the sense that you might lose your life, but dangerous in the sense that it might affect you deeply. It might change your priorities. It might change the way you spend your time. And, and I know there's a practicality to this is because emotional connection and love go hand in hand. And so I realize that how do I love a stranger? How do I love a neighbor across town, across the county that I don't even know? How do I love a complete absolute stranger? I think one of the ways that we do this is that we, here's a life principle for you, you love practically and God will help you connect emotionally. 
How many faith in action, hope in action days have we had? We go to absolute rank strangers and we bless them. We don't know them. They don't know us. We sit out in their yard after serving them and we drink tea and we talk life. And, and all of a sudden we have a new friend. We help somebody who lives in a burned out house. We clean out their stuff. We help them get going. We've given cars to them. There's so many ways that we can practically love people. And all of a sudden, if you get yourself practically involved in somebody else's life, then all of a sudden, you see life differently. You see them differently. Recently, we, the, the city of Bentonville asked us to do a, a kind of a tabulation of, uh, of community projects and ways that we have served Bentonville and the surrounding community. Um, how our people... Has, has, has gone into the community and served. Not inside these four walls, not on Sunday morning. And I was blown away. I was blown away whenever we started tabulating up all the ways that you have loved our community. In fact, I mean, whether it's, I mean, even going as far as Joplin and serving in Joplin, this is what we found out through Hope and Action Days, through Joplin, through Rogers Boys and Girls Club Ministries that we got going on over there. We have, we have given this one year 4,802 uh, 4, volunteer hours. I thought, what does that represent in a dollar figure? If we paid everybody, if we paid that in a dollar figure, and we just paid minimum wage, what would that be of seven twenty-five an hour? That would be $34,814.50 in volunteer labor. I would hope this. You've heard me say this. I would hope that if Grace Point didn't exist, they would have to raise the taxes in Bentonville. Because there would be a missing element. There would be a missing love expressed practically in the community. And you know what? That's you guys. That's you guys doing that. That's you guys going into broken and, and, and distressed people. I told you last week that we're going to I'm putting out some BHAGs, those big, hairy, audacious goals for us for the next 10 years. Last week we talked about the first big, hairy, audacious goal, and it's a great commission goal. And, and I would love to see Grace Point Church lead a charge to see the Bombra people to, to reach this less than 1.13% of the people who are followers of Jesus and help get them at least to 2% in the next 10 years. We can't do it on our own. We've got to be committed to this in a major way. And I'm excited about the challenge and the goal. I pray that God uses us to be catalysts in this effort. But there's another one I want to give for a more local mission, practical, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. Big, hairy, audacious goal. It's a great commandment goal. And it is this is that Grace Point would lead the way in alleviating the orphan needs of children in northwest Arkansas. That in 10 years from now, there just wouldn't be a need. Now that's going to mean uh, some preventatives, helping families function that are dysfunctional. It's going to mean helping young men and young ladies get out of the system that have been in a system that have been for generations after generations. Maybe that's going to Saving Grace and helping Saving Grace like we've never helped Saving Grace before. Women who are in transition from foster orphan care into the real world. 
I don't know what it means. I mean, I, I hope that whenever we look at Benton County and we look at Northwest Arkansas in 10 years from now, it will be one of the most healthy family communities you can be in. And we'll be a part of that. And I don't know what that looks like. That's what I'm saying. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal. But I hope this, that I hope that we will open our homes. I hope that we will open our schedules. I hope that we will open our ministry campus. I hope that we will open our hearts to being available, to making an impact on people who don't have a functional mother and father in their lives. Pure, genuine religion is the sight of God. The Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. This past week, I was talking to some of the families in our churches who have opened their homes up to orphans and to foster care and to adoption and so forth. And just the Moors, just the Moors family, one of the ones in the, fa- in the video, they received this week six phone calls, six, asking them if they would open up their home. And they, they have been rotating children in and out of their home regularly, consistently. And they said, would you open up your home again for some more children? And they got six phone calls in seven days. And listen to this. One child is one year old and was a little boy. Four were three-year-olds. One was a nine-year-old being placed out of a failed adoption. One was a two-year-old little boy. A four-month-old and a three-year-old sibling set. And one was a sibling set of five children ages 12 to 14. And each one of those, because of their circumstances, they couldn't take them in. And so they call through the list, and they keep calling through the list, trying to find a home. Just to open it up for a few days, for a few hours, for a few weeks, for a few months, I don't know. But what it would mean for us, you say, all my beds are full. Okay, I understand. What about just mentoring them? Being a part of a big brother's big sisters. What about you know, what, what if we could, on our ministry campus here, open it to the community and serve the CASA ministries that are out in northwest Arkansas, caring for children who are in this system? I would hope that we would be a church that the community turns to, to love those who are not so much in a lovable situation. On March 8, 1976, I was adopted. Now... I've lived all my life with my biological mother. No, not today. I married 20 years ago and I moved out. But uh, up until then, all right? So that's not a riddle. I was adopted, but I lived with my biological mother. I lived in a home where there was, had several stepdads, and it was, it was, but I had my mother, and she was there, and she's right here. And I love her to death for being the consistent one uh, in my life. But I was adopted on March 8th, 1976 by a man named Jesus Christ. I know, it's spiritual, but hang with me. Up until that point, I really didn't know, and, and to be honest with you, I didn't know immediately what that would look like because there hadn't been the consistency before. And so when you read verses like, I will never leave you, 
or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you. You could tell me that 10,000 times and I could not register that in my mind because that's not how I saw daddy's function. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. But over the course of those years, I'm beginning to understand that a father... A real father will never leave or forsake his children. And I am so eternally grateful that I was adopted by my father. And I can call him daddy. The Bible even says to call him daddy. And I think about that on a spiritual level and I think about that on a practical level. And I think, oh, to God, that we would have people in this world, in our rich Christianity, in our affluent knowledge of our faith and doctrines, and we would not love God enough to love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love the things that God loves, which is people, to the point that we would go and adopt and love and accept and pour into people the way Jesus pours into us. And I think about... Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and it says that God adopted us into His own family by bringing us to Himself. How? Through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do. He didn't have to. Nobody forced us into His, into his family. God wanted to. He wanted to. And it gave him great pleasure to do it. How can we be a part of what God's a part, love what God loves? How can we be more like Jesus? It's going to cost us dearly. It's going to be risky to no end. And my question to you today is twofold. One, do you know the good pleasure of what it means to be adopted by God. That's first and foremost. Do you, 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 and you know what it means to be adopted by God? If you don't, Eric's going to be here at the front. I'll be hanging out here at the front. Just come and say, I, I want to be adopted. I want to be adopted by God. I want to be loved by a Father who will never leave me nor forsake me. And we'll walk you through the process. If you're here... And you say, Mike, I want to love God. I've been playing games. I've been puppy-loving God. But I want to love Him, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then this is a time to reflect. This is a time to get serious with Him. Just bow your heads and pray with me. Just in a quiet moment. Are you ready to love Him? Full on, all in, love Him? Are you, are you ready? Are you ready to love your neighbor? The unknown, the unnamed person in your life that you'll meet tomorrow, that you might meet today, that just needs you to practically show love to them and allow, allow God to connect you emotionally. Maybe you met someone yesterday and you realize right now you need to go and show practically love to them. Just let this be a time where you reflect, where you pray, where you sing. Father God, right now. Be in this place. Be, in, be real in us, through us, 
And God, no more playing puppy love kind of games. Let's ridiculously risky, costly, dangerously love you and love others like we've never loved before. Open our eyes and our hearts to this, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing? If you need to pray, come and pray at the front. If you need to pray with somebody, we're here. Eric and I both are here, so come.